Amen. Would you remain standing and let's give attention to God's word this morning in Judges, the 13th chapter. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, part of our text this morning. The word of God to you today. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who opposed them or oppressed them for 40 years. In those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant and they had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. God seems to specialize in working through impossible situations to accomplish his purposes and his will. The word of God to you today, you can be seated. Well, good morning, my name is Chris and I'm one of the pastors here at New City and I'm grateful uh, this morning to be sharing a story from the book of Judges. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, I wanna encourage you to turn with me to Judges chapter 13 from the passage that you just heard today. It's a part of a larger story, a narrative from the final judge in the book of Judges, uh, a man named Samson. How many of you have heard of Samson before? Okay, so this is a story just to say, we're gonna take the next two weeks to cover Samson's uh, narrative, his story here, uh, which is found in Judges 13 through 16. But Samson, just to say up front, is more than a story about hair or incredible strength. Uh, In the person of Samson, we actually see a miniature of the story of all of Israel. Um, A very complex person and personality. And just to remember in context for the book of Judges, if you're just joining us um, at New City, we're so glad you're here and I hope you'll come back. Uh, We've been walking through all of these major judges from the book of Judges. And there's six major judges. You remember this? Um, that Judges sort of mirrors Genesis and its creation account found in Genesis 1 and 2. And in the six days of creation, we see the formation of all the world. And on the seventh day, all of creation, including mankind, rest under its Sabbath king, the creator. And we see order and structure and goodness and glory to God in the world, in the world that he created, good and perfect. And in the book of Judges, the way that Judges mirrors creation is it's, it's the opposite. It's the unraveling and the undoing of the good and perfect world that God created. And so there's six days of creation, and the seventh day is a Sabbath on which creation rests under its Sabbath king. And there's actually six major judge cycles, and every single one of those is the unraveling or the uncreation of God's good and perfect world. And on the seventh day, there is no rest, and we find the result of the unraveling of Israel in the final verse of Judges where it says, in those days, there was no king, no Sabbath king, and everyone did what was right. Do you remember? In their own eyes. And we're gonna talk about eyes today and our sight and whose eyes actually matter most. So if you have a copy of the scriptures again, I hope you're in Judges 13. Um, We're gonna be talking actually uh, about Samson today, um, 
but we're going to begin by talking about Samson's parents. And you heard a little bit of their story in the passage that was read today in verses 1 through 3 in Judges 13. Manoah was uh, Samson's father, and uh, his mother is unnamed, Manoah's wife. But we, we hear a little bit about their narrative and God working through their what seemed to be an impossible situation of them not being able to have children to the Lord coming and visiting them and doing something really miraculous. But I want to come back to that phrase that we, that we heard about you know, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Because if you've been tracking along in the series, you'll remember that in each of the six major judge cycles, there's a phrase that repeats itself and we heard it today again in Judges 13, 1. Let me bring your attention back to it again. As we begin the narrative of Samson in Judges 13, it says again, right? And we remember that we're on the Ferris wheel again going around. Again, the Israelites did what? They did evil in the Lord's sight. And so the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. And so that phrase, if you're taking notes, did evil in the Lord's sight occurs seven different times, something to that number in the Bible. It occurs seven different times in the book of Judges, twice in one of the judge narratives. So in every one of the six major judge cycles, that phrase begins the narrative, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Just a very significant phrase that um, is actually naming a lot of theological truth, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. What does it presuppose when we say that? That there is a Lord, there is a God. There's a God who made us, who ordered his world, who actually says what's right and wrong, that there is a moral code beyond ourselves, and that what matters most is how we um, uh, are seen in his eyes, not in our own eyes or in the eyes of our community, right? And I want you to pay attention to how the phrase evolves as, as we think about this Ferris wheel kind of going around and around again and again, people doing evil on the side of the Lord, the Lord handing them over to their pagan enemies so that they get to a place of desperation and they say the one word prayer that God longs to hear more than any other prayer you could ever pray. If you don't think you can pray, you can say one word today, okay? You remember what it is? Help! And God uh, allowed things, he didn't cause it, but he al allowed chaos and oppression to come their way to get them to a place of desperation to cry out in their heart of hearts the one word prayer that long God longs to hear from your heart today too. Just, just help me, God. And over and over again, God sent these judges. And, and remember, when we think about judges, it's not like you know Judge Wapner or Judge Judy or any of your other ju judges that you think about. It's not a judge that's litigating in a courtroom with a robe on. That word judge in the Hebrew actually means deliverer. So God would send, send these little mini deliverers who were very flawed people, by the way, and they get more and more flawed as we go along. And we'll see that in the story of Samson. But all of them, remember, all these little mini judges are pointing to the judge, pointing to the king of kings to Jesus himself, another child that was born in an impossible situation to, to deliver his people. But what I wanna point out to you is that as those you know, six different phrases are, are repeated throughout the six major judge cycles that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, something happens towards the end of the book in chapters 17 through 21, which we'll finish on Thanksgiving weekend and then the first weekend in December, after the major judge cycle, we see a world, Israel, in chaos because they're not living under the sovereign rule and reign of their creator God, their Sabbath king. 
And I want you to pay attention to the phrase that happens twice at the end of the book. It goes from doing evil in the sight of the Lord to this phrase, that they did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, This is a very dangerous transition I want you to see. Because Israel, the people of God, go from doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, again, presupposing that there is a Lord, that there is a right and wrong, that what matters most are his eyes and how we're living in his sight, to I'm actually not just doing wrong, but I'm actually calling wrong what? Right. And it's right in whose eyes? In my eyes. Does this remind you of anything? I mean, does this have any, any application in our, our, our world today? Where you would take what is clearly evil in the sight of the Lord and that you would, you would not only uh, forget and, and not say anymore, you know, like this is evil, this is wrong in the sight of our God and his eyes matter most, but you would actually take that and move it to moralizing what is clearly evil into what is right and saying it's right in my eyes, and that's what matters most. Friends, there's nothing new under the sun. And so it's the same play from the enemy that's been repeated over and over and over again. In fact, let's go all the way back to Genesis. The, the, when, when, when sin entered into the world, into to God's good created order. And remember Genesis, if you're just taking notes, maybe just go cross-reference this passage this week. The, the sin narrative is, as creation after six days of God's created order, they rest under their Sabbath king and all is good. And then all heck breaks loose in Genesis 3. And it begins in verse six by Eve taking of the fruit because why? Because it looked good in her eyes. Whose eyes matter most in your life? Whose eyes matter most in our culture's life? When what is clearly wrong in God's eyes is seen as certainly right in our culture's eyes, we have a problem. And we have a problem. And I do want to speak prophetically today and say that we are living in a post-Christian culture, meaning that to assume that someone would, would um, presuppose that there is a God, that there is a moral code, that his eyes matter most is, is to wrongly assume in our culture today. Because not only do we not live there, but we're taking what is clearly wrong and we're moralizing and saying it's right. And the new Pharisee today is not a religious zealot, it's a humanistic moralist who would say what's right for me is right for all of you and I'm gonna tell you what's right in my eyes. So not only are you not doing you know, the things that God is saying clearly not to do, but you're taking those and making them moral law and code. This is very dangerous. We're surrounded by a culture today that would make what is clearly evil morally right in the majority's eyes. I wanna remind you of a passage today that Solomon said. Solomon was known as the wisest person in the world. He asked God for wisdom and God gave it to him. Remember James 1, 5, and 6, that if you lack wisdom, I certainly do, (laughs) you should ask the Lord for it because he wants to generously give it to you in your marriage and the situation that you bring into the room today that you go, man, this feels impossible with my kids, with my business, the meeting that I'm facing tomorrow as a Christ follower, It's meant to get us to a place where we say, help, 
Lord, I need your help. I need wisdom. James 1, 5 and 6, if we lack wisdom, we should ask for it because God longs to give it generously. Verse 6, but if, if we ask for it, we should have faith to believe what he says and not be a double-minded person, right? All right, let's look at Proverbs 15, 3. Proverbs 15, 3 says, the eyes, let's come back to that, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. That the Lord is watching. And when we come back to that question, like whose eyes matter most? I just, I just wanna say this for someone in the room today who might be struggling with this and, and, and has moved from a place of like, not only is, am I not in a place where I believe in right and wrong and a God who has a moral code and who sees and, and that his eyes matter most to my life, but I've actually begun to move and get pulled into a situation where I'm taking what is clearly wrong and I'm believing it's right because it's right in my eyes or in the eyes of somebody else in my community that's telling me and I'm afraid of being canceled or I'm afraid of being you know, ostracized for my beliefs. I just, I just wanna say this, that, that you plus God is always a majority. That, that you plus God's truth and what God says is clearly right and wrong in his eyes are always a majority. And, and, and moreover, everyone, right, minus God, right, is a minority. And we live like in our American political culture and the negotiation of power where like majority rules, right? And, and we come out of an election week and we say, well, you know, 51%, whatever. No, no. We come back to what's right in God's eyes. And it doesn't matter if anybody else on the planet is living that way. What matters most is God's eyes. What does God say? What's God asking of his people? Listen, guys, when we talk about Israel and we're like, you know, we talk about this Ferris wheel going around and around and we go, like, get off the ride, stop doing it. Why do you keep do, doing evil in the sight of the Lord and just spinning out your family and all these things? It's because like sin oftentimes is so attractive because it, it appeals to something in us and our senses that, that feels right. You know, the Bible says there's a way that seems right in our eyes, but in the end, it leads to destruction. Because we're, we're easily pulled into different situations where we, where we just believe that this is right. This goes back to the original sin where, where Eve saw that it was pleasing, it was good in her sight, her eyes, and they both ate of the fruit. This past weekend, uh, Jen and I had a chance to be, we really missed you. We were with other church planners from around the world. Um, gathered to talk about bringing the Great Commission to, to the world in our lifetime. And what would it look like? And there's 4.6 million places in the world that people live, villages and cities around the world. And what would it look like to have a, a gospel-centered evangelical church within walking distance of every person on the planet? Um, for every man, woman, and child to, to hear and to see the gospel multiple times and have an opportunity to respond to God's grace. And one of the things that we prayed about and talked about with, the, with that gathering of church planners is the persecution of the church around the world. And, you know, we, we face kind of a, a Cold War persecution um, in, in America. We, we might get canceled. Someone might comment on, on, our, on our feed or whatever. But listen, like hearing stories this past weekend of people's hands being put under an iron, of being uh, placed in prison and falsely accused of being, of being killed, of being beaten, because the proclamation of the gospel should, should sober us and, 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 and remind us that for such a time as this, you know, we live and we move and we have our being to bring glory to God and attention to the gospel. That's the only thing that matters in life. 
is that people come to understand Jesus, to find him and to passionately follow after him. And I was just convicted, right? Uh, I, I was just convicted of, man, I, I live my life, you know, in so many ways, afraid of what people might think about me or say about me. And this morning in my reading in Galatians, I was reminded in Galatians 1.10 where Paul says, if I was living to please people, I would be no longer serving God. And I just was so reminded of this whole idea of like whose eyes matter most. And I don't know how that hits you today, but it certainly convicted me today. Because again, when it comes to sin, we have a a way of rationalizing ourselves um, into thinking that not only is it not evil in the Lord's sight, but it's actually right. It's right in our own sight. In the book of Judges, uh, we learn uh, two key truths about sin. And if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to just write this down. We learn uh, in this passage, even in 13 verse 1, the definition of sin, which comes from a Greek word, harmatea, which means literally to miss the mark. Uh, That's what the word means. So it's it's the idea of we fall short, we we miss the mark, which even for some of us in the room, we go, well, I feel like I'm a pretty good person, you know? And and typically when it comes to myself, this whole idea of doing right in my own eyes— uh, it is kind of a majority rule. And I hear from so many people, you know, when I, when I get to heaven's gates, I just, I hope the Lord lets me in that I've done enough good things to outweigh my bad things. As if, you know, I'm gonna get in 51 to 49 and just sort of slide in. And typically the people that I think are morally, you know, insufficient or whatever are in the 49% and me and my friend and family members and the people that like the same sports teams as me and live in the same, like the same food and and have the same political affiliations. We're in the 51% and and, and we kind of get in. What a horrible way to live. And what God says is, no, it's it's not 51 to 49, it's 100% or zero. And that, spoiler alert, good, good, good people don't go to heaven. That forgiven people go to heaven. People who have experienced the grace of God because the Bible reminds us there is no one good. In fact, Romans 3.23, if you're just taking notes, just let me remind you of what Paul says. He says, for everyone, for all, what's the definition of all? All means all, and that's all all means all. Everyone has sinned. Let's go back to our definition of sin, to miss the mark. Everybody has missed the mark, and we fall short of God's glorious standard. What is God's glorious standard? 51%? That's a pretty good guy. I did some good things. I did some bad too, but hopefully God will sort it all out and I'll make my way in. Is that what Paul says? No. God's glorious standard is holiness, which means 100%. Perfection. So, so what do we do? A lot of people memorize Romans 3, 23. We forget verse 24. So what's the answer? Well, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. This is so beautiful. He did through Jesus Christ what we could not do for ourselves, freeing us from the penalty of sin. So what is grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. To be invited into God's forever family and given acceptance and a place at God's table. So sin we learn here in the book of Judges and this definition doesn't consist primarily of us violating our own standards in our own eyes 
or even violating the standards of our community in their sight, sin is violating the standards in God's eyes. So my senses, my eyes will lie to me about what's right and what's wrong. Or any of that, anybody that happened to you before? The starting point of sin is not trusting in my own eyes, but trusting in God's eyes. What does God say? And then we see the deception of sin here too. These, these phrases, these, this progression from Judges 1 to where we are now, that they did evil on the side of the Lord. They did evil on the side of the Lord seven different times to where we've progressed to. They did right in their sight. There's a progression here in the deception of sin. And the heart of their denial, pay attention to this, is their idolatry. Okay, so when we started uh, the book of Judges, remember, uh, Judges goes all the way from Joshua's leadership coming into the promised land to the beginning of the monarchy. And it spans over 300 years as the people of God come to the promised land and God wants them to take possession of it and to live fully in his promises. And we talked about the physical promised land that God had promised to his people was a physical manifestation of all the blessings and goodness that he wanted to give to his people. But we've also talked about there's a difference between God giving you a gift and you taking full possession of that said gift. And what we see happen here, don't miss this, is God inviting each of us and inviting his people to enjoy all of his goodness and his promises and to take possession of what is yours in Christ Jesus. And a people, right, and uh, us included, that continue, instead of uh, joining God in his invitation into his promises, inviting God to join us in our idolatry. So instead of saying, God, I'll join you exclusively and trust you in your promises 100%, Right? I'll have faith and trust in you and go all in on you, God. Instead of that, what we do is we invite God. God, no, you come and join me in all of my stuff. All, here, let me introduce you to all my other gods. And you can have a seat at my faith table. And I'll even give you 25% of my faith. But I'm going to mitigate my risk. Because if you don't come through, I'm going to trust in my finances. I'm going to trust in my relationships. I'm going to trust in my pedigree. Hello? I'm going to trust in my religiosity. You know, church can be a really safe place to seemingly hide from God. My religiosity can, can pre- present a, a veneer of morality to other people. Did you know that the same tree that Adam and Eve ate from is probably the same tree that they grabbed the fig to cover with? So I'm gonna to present to you that I'm a really moral person. I would never lie. And I'm, and I'm being very overt to tell you that I'm not lying. But over here, I'm embezzling from my company. And the greatest cover for that is to, to present to you how moral of a person I am. And this is the danger of religiosity, of moving from doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord to doing what is right in my own eyes. And remember I talked about the new Pharisee and religion and, and Jesus' day, there was religious zealots that were, had a veneer of religiosity, but on the inside, Jesus said they were empty. And today it's my morality. I, I, I come across and I say, I'm, I'm such a moral person, I'm gonna impose all that on you, what's right in my own eyes, and cover with that. This is the deception. Let, let me say it this way, I love this quote from Thomas Brooks. He says that Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. All right, and this is a little bit of what uh, C.S. Lewis said, 
that in sin, right, there's always an element there of goodness and, and truth in the sense that something that God wants good and, and pleasant and gifts and goodness that he wants to give to me. But, but sin is basically this, is me taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing, right? It's me taking a good desire in my heart for intimacy and for love and turning it into lust. It's me taking a desire to be accepted and I turn it into people please and I live for the approval of other people. And this is what the enemy does. He takes a good desire and perverts it in the way that we meet that desire because we don't wanna exclusively go all in on Jesus. Is anybody with me today? So let's get back to our story in Judges 13. All of that for context to the story of Samson and his parents. So God has often, again, worked through um, a child whose birth seemed impossible to bring about deliverance and redemption. Can you think of any of these? Isaac, uh, Samuel, Samuel who wrote the book, most likely the book of Judges, who chronicled it together because he knew the stories. Uh, Samson that we read about today. Uh, again, Samuel who puts it all together. Uh, John the Baptist. Is there another one that I'm forgetting? An improbable child that came about to rescue and redeem his people. Right, and all of these point to Jesus, uh, just like all the judges pointed to Jesus. And the special birth of Samson reminds us that God can use what seems to be impossible situations uh, to do what he wants to do and to make sure that people know it was him. You know, you can't have, listen everyone, you can't have an only God story in your life unless you're facing an impossible situation. If you could solve it, it can't be an only God story. And that's what Samson's parents were facing. They wanted a child so badly, but they were unable to conceive. And an angel of the Lord, which actually turns out to be a theophany, the word theophany means an appearance of Christ before his incarnation. So in other words, this is, Jesus has always, always existed, right? The triune God has always existed for all time. And so Jesus, of course, existed before his birth in Bethlehem, and he visits uh, many Old Testament stories. And this is another one where he makes a, an appearance to Samson's parents in the redemptive story of history. And he appears first. Do you remember um, who, he, who he comes to first to say, you're going to have a child? Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, right? And so a mother's faith, just to, just to pay attention to this for a second, the angel appears to uh, Manoah's wife, um, to Samson's uh, uh, mom, and says, I, I know you're barren, but you're going to give birth to a son. And, she, and he actually says, and you're, uh, don't drink alcohol and don't drink these um, or eat, eat of these foods. And you say, well, why, why was that important? Well, if you go read number six, there's what's known as a, a Nazarite vow. And it was basically a special group of people who would take a vow. Uh, so Samuel was a Nazarite. Uh, do you remember someone in the New Testament who was a Nazarite? John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Uh, so they would take these vows and uh, it was really just a, a marker physically that I'm set apart for the special work of the Lord. And so the angel said, your son's gonna be special. He's gonna help deliver um, you know, God's people. And I want you even now in utero uh, to begin you know, keeping up with this vow and not consuming alcohol and all that. So she goes and she tells her husband, Manoah, you know, that this man of God came and visited and said, we're gonna have a child and, and we're to take this Nazarite vow for him even now. And Manoah says what any, you know, guy would say, like, I wanna hear from myself, right? So he says, I'm gonna begin to pray and I wanna, I wanna hear from the Lord. And, and the Lord grants that, except he comes to his wife again, which is kind of funny. 
Um, and so she says, well, let me go get my husband. So she goes and gets Manoah. You can read all the story for yourself this week. I hope you will in Judges 13. And Manoah comes and he says, uh, this is so interesting. He says, uh, you know, is this true that we're going to have a son? And the angel of the Lord says, yes. And, and Manoah says, well, you've got you've to give us rules to help us understand how to raise this boy. And, you know, parents in the room and grandparents, wouldn't it be great that like when our kids are born, we, we got a rule book and a playbook for every single one of them for exactly what to do in every situation, right? We remind our three teenagers, like you're our first kids. We, we, we haven't done this before, right? So we're, we're trying to make wise decisions, but you didn't come with a manual, right? We don't know exactly, you know, the on off switches and all the different, um, you know, sophisticated things that make up a person and decisions and how to parent. And that's basically Manoah is going, I need a rule book. I need to understand how to raise this, this special child. And this is what's so cool to me. Everybody watch this. Is instead of the angel of the Lord saying, here's the rule book, here's more law, here's more things you have to do. Instead of giving Manoah and his wife a rule book, he gives him, uh, them a revelation of himself. And I think this is so significant when we talk about whose eyes matter most and, and in the sight of the Lord, that as Manoah and his wife are promised what will be Samson and they ask for rules to, to raise him in the right way, the Lord reveals himself in this special way. And I just, I just wanna say to each of you who are looking for like, God, just give me the specific answer. Give me the rule book. Just tell me what to do. Just give me whatever. What God's gonna give to you more than any specific answer is a vision and revelation of himself. That the Lord wants you to see him and his goodness and his might and his wonder and his awesomeness. Just like when Isaiah said, you know, um, I, I, in the year that King Uzziah died, I what? I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his road filled the temple. And, and more than any of the chaos in that world, right? If you know the context of that in Isaiah 6, Uzziah had reigned for over 50 years. It was like this huge crisis in Israel's history. And what Isaiah, when he looks back on it, he says, yeah, I know that Uzziah died and like the world was falling apart. But what I remember that year for is that that's the year I saw the Lord. Like the most important thing more than any answer that you want in a situation that you're facing in a relationship. For some of you, I know today that your marriage is on the rocks, that you're wondering what's gonna happen more than any answer for your specific problem. The answer is a revelation of Jesus. To see him high and lifted up, to see his goodness, the way out of, hey, I'm just doing what's right in my own eyes. The way out of this deception of sin and the cycle of sin that we see in the book of Judges is not more rules. The way out is a vision of Jesus. To see the Lord high and lifted up. To see God for who he really is and his goodness. And so Manoah says, hey, what's your name? Verse 17, to the angel Lord, to Jesus. This is amazing. What's your name? And Jesus, the angel of the Lord says, look at verse 18. I think I've got it up here. Why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord replied. It's too wonderful to you for, to understand. He doesn't say it's too religious for you to understand. He doesn't say it's too harsh. Some of you, your view of God is like, he's, he's like this grandfather in heaven that's just gonna smack your hand every time you do something bad. He doesn't say anything. He says, it's too, it's too good for you to understand. Your mind would explode if you saw a full vision of God and his goodness. But in God's grace, 
God gives Manoah and his wife a simple look, a glimpse of who God is. And that's enough for them to trust him, to believe him for the plan that he had. And more than any rule book or any uh, law or any solution or answer to their specific crisis or problem, what God showed to them was himself and his goodness and his grace and his love. And dear friends, that's what God wants to do for you too. You say like, so are you saying, Chris, that the answer to my problem is Jesus? Yes. You go, that just seems too simple. Look, look, life is complicated. And the problems that you bring into the room today, the problem sets that you bring here are super complex, I know. But the answer that the Lord gives is a vision of himself. To stop looking at everything around you, stop even looking at what's inside of you because the answer is not in here and start looking up to see a vision of who God is. You know, that God, you would be thou my vision. That you would show me more of yourself and that will be enough. Remember what the scriptures say, Lord, just show us a glimpse of this. Just show us a vision of yourself and that'll be enough. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, let's just stay here forever because we see a vision of who God is. If we knew the power of prayer, the power of seeing God, we'd never cease to pray. If we knew how God wanted to reveal himself to us, we'd never stop seeking the Lord. And so this is so cool. So Manoah says, okay, I'm gonna take this young goat and some bread and we're gonna feed you. He still doesn't get it that this is, this is an angel of the Lord. And so Jesus, the angel of the Lord says, you can go and get a young goat and the bread, but offer as a sacrifice to God, fine. So they come back and they put it on the rock and this is what happens. That fire from heaven consumes the sacrifice, the offering to God. Their simple offering is a couple to God and how the Lord has revealed himself and, and spoken to them and spoken right into their situation, just like he does for us. And what happens is fire consumes the sacrifice. Look at the passage with me. And then in verse 23, Manoah finally realizes, right? He's like, we, 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 we've saw, this is the Lord. Like it, it is, this isn't just a, a, another person. Like this was God that revealed himself to us. And what is his response? We've seen God, we're gonna die. We're gonna die, right? And really the faith hero of the story of, of his parents is Manoah's wife right? Because the angel of the Lord appears to her twice. She's the one that goes, it's sort of like, it's pretty cool. It's actually the reverse of the sin narrative. And it's her leading her husband into this story of redemption and faith and, and what God wants to do. And she says, listen to her words. She says, Manoah, I, um, babe, I don't, I don't know what they call each other. Like, if God wanted to kill us, we'd already be dead. Like, why would God make himself known to us and reveal himself to us and tell us this wonderful assignment that we have that we're gonna raise this boy that's gonna deliver his people? Why would God do all this and accept our sacrifice to him if he wanted to kill us? No, no, God wants to do something wonderful. And he's, look at what she says here. Uh, let me find Verse 23, he wouldn't have appeared to us and told us this wonderful thing and done these wonderful miracles if he wanted to kill us. In other words, he would not have revealed himself to us in the miraculous, wonderful way that he has if he wanted to just get rid of us. And let's just stop right here and look at the cross. 
if God just wanted to get rid of us and just say, enough, I've had it with you guys. Because over and over and over again, you not only do evil in the sight of the Lord, you've taken what is evil and made it right in your sight. And I'm just, I've had enough. But here's the good news today, is that God's grace abounds. And in spite of us continuing to do the same thing over again, to be on the Ferris wheel of sin and continue instead of accepting God's invitation to his full promises and instead inviting God to join us in our paganism and idolatry, God still loves us because he loves us and he can't deny himself in us. And we look to the cross as the proof of God's unending, unfailing love to us and the revelation that he wants to, to make known to us. And remember, what is worship? When we talk about worship here, worship is our response to God's revelation. And what was God's ultimate revelation? I'm almost done, guys, okay? What is God's ultimate revelation? Well, we have his word, we have the counsel of his word, we have the Holy Spirit residing in us, we have the community of the saints, that helped to pray with us and, and help us discern God's will. But ultimately, what was the ultimate revelation of God? Jesus. The Word made flesh. The invisible God made visible to us. And it's through the cross and the empty tomb that we see the ultimate expression and revelation and visibility of the love of God for us. This wonderful thing that the Lord has done for us. And so now we walk in the confidence, not in our own eyes, but in God's love, in his eyes. And just so Samson is born, just to finish, and we'll pick up here next week. And the word, the name Samson, you know what the, the name Samson means? The name Samson means the little son. Just like, that's a weird name. It's a pagan name. All right, so remember, Samson is the final judge in the book of Judges. And in the ultimate, like, exclamation, thumb your nose at God, he's named after a pagan god. And in spite of, I mean, talk about the duplicity of people. In spite of that, and, and even Manoah and his wife naming him after a pagan God, a Canaanite God that they lived among, inviting God to participate in their story instead of accepting God's invitation into his story. In spite of that, God uses Samson, flawed as he was, in an incredible way, and we'll see that next week. And what's really interesting is there's a double meaning to the name, right? The little son, they meant it S-U-N, but he's, he actually is a little Jesus. He is a little S-O-N, little son. He's a pointer to the one who would come. And look at the last verse in chapter 13 and the first verse in chapter 14. Uh, the, the spirit of the Lord begins to stir in Samson's heart, right? So in spite of all his flaws, and there are many, and we'll get to them next week, it's the spirit's stirring in him that overcomes his senses to be used in a powerful way to bring about deliverance, even through his flaws, and the Lord begins to stir in him. But I want you, I want you to, we'll, we'll leave it here, cliffhanger, right? Chapter 14, verse one. Samson makes his way over to a Philistine town and he sees this woman and she was pleasing in his sight, in his eyes. 
and we see in his life this this conflict between whose eyes matter most, the, the stirring of the spirit and what matters in God's eyes and his sight, or his own senses and his own sight, and this battle back and forth. And here's the bottom line this week, and it'll be the bottom line next week too, is that my senses seduce, but God's spirit stirs. My senses seduce. They pull me into different places that are evil in the sight of the Lord and moreover, that take what is evil and make it right in my sight. But God's spirit continues to stir, to bring me back to a place of his wonderful grace and his miracles. The ultimate being Jesus himself. To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for giving us the ultimate picture and expression of God's love for us that you embodied. You, you, you became flesh. You took on flesh to give us a, a vision and a, and, a, and a sight and an understanding of who you are and your great and wonderful miraculous love for us that never gives up. So may we, just like Isaiah did, see the Lord high and lifted up today. And beyond any of our problems, our our disappointments, our circumstances, the things that are troubling our hearts today, our grief for those who have lost this morning, may we see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, a vision, a revelation of who you are, God. Would you look upon your people with your eyes? And would you continue to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and stir us to be your people? We'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand as we respond together?
what, what a beautiful prayer. <laughs> um, we'll have some prayer team members up front here. They've got a yellow lanyard on. Um, if you want to talk about something that's stirred in your heart today or pray with something that's going on in your life about something that's going on in your life, we'd love to have the privilege to do that. And we have a prayer list that we circulate, um, I think to about 150, 200 people now that pray every week. So uh, if you want to write something down or come tell one of us or go online and fill out our prayer requests, we'd love to be able to pray for you this week. And uh, if I had a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you today too. If you have an extra minute, um, we'll keep your kids for an extra minute. We'd love to be able to pray with you or meet you. And if you're looking to get connected here, we'd love for New City to be your church home. If you're ready to take that step, go to, go to Connection Point. It's right out in the middle of the courtyard. And we've got some friendly teammates that would love to give you a gift and help you get connected here into a group or on a team. And for us, giving um, is a part of worship. So if you're visiting here, uh, p- please don't feel obligated to give. Um, we really would love it for this service to be our gift to you. And I do hope you'll come back. But if you call New City your home and you're committed to our mission of helping people find and follow Jesus, uh, this is a time for you to give. And you can do that online or in one of the green boxes on the way out um, today. I'm going to continue in Judges next week. So I do hope you'll come back and hear the rest of Samson's story. Uh, but until then, if you're able, would you extend your hands for a blessing as we go today? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you. And may the Lord Jesus today and all throughout this week till we meet again, fill you with his grace and his mercy and a vision of his goodness. In the name of Christ, amen, amen. Love you, New City.